Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box Global Election Coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Ballot Box. Today, we're going to talk about three elections that happened on the 3rd of April, um, and we're going to focus on Serbia and Hungary, especially. We're, we're only going to talk about Costa Rica briefly. It's an episode with um, bad news, but we're used to bad news. We're political scientists, and we cover elections. Um, it's, it's, it's part and parcel of, of this, of this uh, profession and body of knowledge. But before we get into a slugfest of um, of not too pleasant things, let's let's hear how Johnny and and Chris are. How's how's everything in London, Johnny? Yeah, it's it's good. Um, not really much of anything to report, really. Um, it's been a very quiet week. Um, just chugging along, marking some essays, doing some PhD stuff. Yeah, great. Quiet, quiet is good. Quiet, quiet is definitely. <laughs> Yes, this, in, in this nice. day, yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> How about you, Chris? Um, yeah, I don't really have much to report um, myself. Um, um, yeah, the sun—it's been relatively pleasant in Manchester, which is nice. It may, may not last for the rest of the year, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it while I can. Good, and the cats are good, right? The cats are wonderful. <laughs> a lovely time. Okay, great. I haven't seen either of them like uh, stalking you in the background for a while. So. No, I've been trying to close my door more <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that people can't get in. Because <laughs> okay. you've become very clingy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's good to know that they're fine. All right. Yeah. And um, things are things are good with me too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They're all they're all good. Excellent. Um, yeah, I thought uh, we could start with with Costa Rica. This mm-hmm. is a we covered the elections. We covered the first round, and we did kind of an extensive background. Um, now over a month ago, actually. Um, so there's an episode on on the first on the first round of of, of the Costa Rican presidential election. Um, and just to report that the center right or right wing candidate Rodrigo Chavez ended up beating uh, Jose Maria Figueres. Who, who's a former president and the son of another former president. So we could kind of say that the establishment uh, was defeated, although um, I think it's still kind of concerning the way that, I think it's quite concerning the way that Rodrigo Chavez won. Uh, he was, it's, it's not like Rodrigo Chavez is not part of the establishment. He's just less, less, less of, less of kind of, uh, he's, he's not part of a sort of political dynasty in the way that his opponent was. Mm. Um, he, he was finance minister and he also worked for the World Bank. And as the campaign was ongoing, uh, very, you know, serious allegations of serial, serial sexual harassment on the part of the candidate emerged from former employers, employees, sorry, former employees of the World Bank. And and, and, and the reaction that Chavez uh, had is is frankly very concerning. He he turned more right. He he started speaking out against so-called gender ideology. He allied himself with some very unsavory, um, like uh, very conservative evangelical figures. And he ended up winning this way with 53 percent 
versus Figueres' mm -hmm. 47%. It's a move that is reminiscent of um, the South Korean uh, candidate who won, um, we also covered recently, Moon, when, when we had Dr. Yang over as a guest. So, you know, kind of bad news from Costa Rica. I mean, it, it's it's a very high-functioning democracy, very, you know, yeah. et cetera. But but you know it's 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 a shame that uh, it's it's terrible that uh, right wing candidates would win appealing to these kind of very base anti anti feminist anti women um, mm. strategies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, uh, and and do we know if he was um, pulling in the second round more from kind of right wing parties as well? Or, uh, is that something yeah, yeah, he definitely was. I mean, there was a there's there's a there's a kind of upsurge of evangelical, very conservative candidates in Costa Rica. Mm. Um, and last election, um, which was uh, four or five years ago, I don't remember, 2017, yeah. an evangelical candidate nearly won, um, was narrowly defeated. Yeah. So he's definitely pulling that. I mean, there, there is, and that's a good point. There, there is a kind of structural incentive to lean uh, very socially conservative if you're slightly to the right in the second round in order to, mm. that's like the, that's the constituency that, that you might want to lean into. Um, yeah. yeah. I just, I just wonder if there, I mean, it'd be a good question to ask if there are ways of doing that without like being, and being, you know, misogynistic and, and you know, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I guess I don't really know the the specific kind of social conservatism in Costa Rica well enough to kind of really say for sure. But yeah, uh, I, I, I kind of uh, the le the left in inverted commas in different forms has been in power in Costa Rica for quite a long time now. Yeah. You know, it, 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 either in the forms, you know, the party that was in power the last two terms is very much on the left, and then uh, the party that was in power before that was was um, for party, which is kind of you know either centrist or centre left, depending on your new particular definition, or or possibly the candidate that's running. Um, so. Yeah, I kind of wonder if th this is also not just a backlash in in those term in that term, but also in the terms of just you know opposition to to kind of more left wing, more liberal politics. Um, even though you know, forget, uh, even though Chavez wasn't, you know, I mean, his party is called Social Democratic Progressive. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he, um, yeah, he was a fi he was a finance minister to one of the left wing presidency. You know, he yeah. hasn't he he didn't historically identify with the right. Although it sounds like he shifted across the presidential campaign into that camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there was speculation that the accusations of harassment. Um, Kind of that this was his reaction to the, to those accusations, which mm. formed a kind of prominent part of the campaign. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. yeah. He didn't really see, ever seem like a figure who had particularly strong ideology. So, yeah, no. No, so no, no. it kind of makes sense that just given that that ha happened, he would kind of shift in that direction. 
yeah uh, in a kind of self-interested mo- motivation mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. not good yeah no not good but uh but life goes on costa rica's very you know very solid institutions um <laughs> mm. uh, but it's it's a worrying trend i mean there's there's mm-hmm. something there. there there might be a little trend uh kind of good paper to be written at some point mm-hmm. uh, yeah <laughs> Not by us. So Absolutely. Um, yeah. And Shall we turn to some worse news now? Yeah. <laughs> even, even, even worse. <laughs> yeah. This the, yeah. This was only the appetizer. Um, mm. The full meal of bad news. What happened in Serbia? Like. Um, oh, what? sorry. Are we, are we not doing hungry? Oh, we're just hungry. Sorry, sorry. Hungry. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were going to get the Hungarian results out of the way first, weren't we? Yeah. Hungarian results. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yes. actually the worst news possible. So we've gone from like a little bit of bad news to like fully bl- full blown. Mm. Um, yes, awfulness. All right. Yes. Okay. So hungry. Um, so we we did an episode um, not what two episodes ago where we were um, discussing the kind of background to how Hungary got to where it was because we thought that would be good background and also. Um, so if you want kind of lots of detail on Hungary that's your place to go I'm not going to try and drag all of that up my kind of um, just a a brief kind of refresh um, for anyone who didn't listen to that episode and and doesn't want to listen to me talk about Hungary for like an hour (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll Hungary Hungary um, had a kind of a transition to democracy in the early 1990s, became very polarized. One of the, the socialists were in, um, from around 2002, the, they were the former Communist Party. Um, this was an era of extreme political polarization in Hungary. And the socialists then kind of blew themselves up um by essentially the prime minister um it became clear that the prime minister had been playing in a very visible way to the Hungarian people that the economic situation um just after a general election um which um just allowed Fidesz to com- the party of the right to completely take off um Fidesz won a two-thirds majority in 2010. Um, they used that to unilaterally change the constitution, completely rewriting it from top to bottom in a way that completely favoured them. And Hungary has been a byword for countries falling into authoritarianism from democracy ever since, really. Um, and it it's been a kind of real struggle for um the opposition to kind of get get relevance so so chris um one of the major questions around uh populist leaders uh, you know incumbent populist leaders is what what the opposition does Mm. and 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 you know a lot sometimes a lot is is made of the incumbent uh capacity to divide the opposition and therefore dilute votes. It's my understanding that in Hungary, um, it's one of the reasons why it's so depressing is because um, the opposition was was able to overcome incentives for division. 
could you could you talk about that as as a kind of yeah habit? yeah so this has been a long-running problem in hungary in hungary is so the electoral system in hungary incentivizes very much against division like even more so yeah division is never a completely ideal thing um against this kind of regime but the hungarian electoral system um heavily heavily incentivizes against any form of um of division of votes it's not very it's not at all proportional it's also gerrymandered very heavily infamously in the favor of fidesz um uh, as as we discussed in the previous episode um so yeah unification um so some kind of united consciousness so unification has been very difficult however um because of the existence of and because of first of all the sheer number of parties um within the opposition so um so while there was a very bipolar system before 2010 the opposition has become divided into quite a large number of parties at this point um that's in part because simply because the, the socialists are so spectacularly blew themselves up in the in the 2000s that um there's been a kind of search for um what kind of thing what kind of approach would be best to kind of rebuild a, a, a kind of a, a, an opponent to to possess so um so of course so just to kind of name some of the parties briefly i'm not going to kind of go through and give huge amounts of detail but just to give a flavor of who's involved so first of all there's the socialists who have kind of big problems because of the kind of memories of all the of all the problems that happened under them and you know, the idea that 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 all they were lying to the country when they were in power um then there is democratic coalition which is currently the largest part of the opposition um democratic coalition is possibly even more problematic than the socialists are because they are the party of French Guxani, who was the literal prime minister, um, who did the Ostos speech and who caused all the kind of massive problems and is e easily today one of the most polarizing political figures in Hungary um, he, um, and has a huge amount of baggage related to accusations of corruption and all sorts of nastiness. Um, then there are two green parties the first of which is um was is now called lmp is essentially um historically took a quite kind of standoffish um approach to the rest of the opposition um ran separately in 2010 ran separately in 2014 um is fairly radical or has a history of being fairly radical um and, and then the other green party is called dialogue it's called dialogue because it was a splinter from lmp that wanted to unify with the rest of the opposition <laughs> um, uh, um so yeah they're, they're both important then and then there is um the momentum movement which is a kind of free market liberal party which has kind of originated in a fairly grassroots fashion um 
uh, and had a really good result in the 2019 European elections. Um, it came third, um, beating both the socialists and, and Jobbik, um, who, um, who are full of kind of young, kind of quite affluent people in Budapest who, you know, are doing quite doing quite well for themselves. And, and then there is Jobbik, which is probably the most infamous party in Hungary, possibly even more so than Fidesz, um, because it has an incredibly extreme right background. Uh, Jobbik on its formation had a paramilitary wing attached to it, which used to go around and beat up people of Roma origin. It wore the uniform of the 1930s um, fascist movement in Hungary. Um, it was a party that even other far-right parties in, in Europe didn't really want much to do with because of how unsavoury they saw it. Um, until about 2014, um, where Jobbik began to moderate quite, quite sharply. Um, it, it was described in Jobbik as, as a movement for a people's party. Um, the idea that Jobbik was going to... And basically, the leaders of Jobbik wanted political power. Um, I think some of the moderation was genuine too. Some people have described it as like, as Jobbik saw Fidesz implementing their policies and decided they didn't like them so much. <laughs> um, and um, as well, a kind of gen I think a kind of commitment to democracy started to creep in. Not a complete commitment to democracy, perhaps, arguably, like the sense to which genuine, I think is possible, at least enough in the sense of they didn't want to be trapped as a kind of phantom opposition to Fidesz. Uh, so the party is kind of now moderated to a position which is generally described as kind of conservative, moderate nationalist. Um, but still, obviously, there's some fairly severe baggage there. <laughs> um, uh, it's fair to say. Um, so the kind of a bunch of those parties unified in 2014 as a kind of grouping called um, Unity. Basically, them kind of more more kind of centre left ones, the Socialist Democratic Coalition dialogue, um, were all part of that. Coalition. That failed um, to make much headway. Um, Jobbik kind of was still then a separate party. The LMP LMP was still then a separate party, um, and and it was kind of seen as quite elite, a little bit of a kind of stitch up. Um, it. Also featured lots of infighting, even during the election campaign when they were supposedly unified um, because of the bad blood that existed between the socialists and and and, um, and the democratic coalition in particular. And then in 2018, the parties ran separately, which was possibly even more of a disaster <laughs> because of the way that the Hungarian electoral system works. Jobbik ended up coming second. Um, uh, which, yeah, was obviously a, a, a kind of a, a bad situation for the centre-left in inverted commas parties to be. So that takes us forward to um, 
to the current parliamentary to the lot well I guess the current parliamentary term in the terms of the fact that the current parliament and the new parliament hasn't been convened yet the um so after 2018 there was a kind of fresh attempt to unify and this first kind of took off with the mayoral election of Budapest the um in 2019 the um and, and what happened there was that the socialists and dialogue announced that they were going to hold a primary together um and so they held that as a kind of uh, they held that and then other parties started started to say hey we'll kind of join in on this primary business that you're doing so they had a kind of second round of the winner of that and the winner of the first round um ended up being the winner of the second round as well a man called um Gigeli, um Karaksani, who then went on to win the mayoralty of budapest by about six points off of the kind of Fidesz um, incumbent. Um, I'm very fond of Karik Sony because he's a, um, by career, he's a pollster and political scientist. So he's obviously one of God's chosen people. Um, <laughs> he, um, he uh, and yes, he's um, a very smart man. Um, as, and yeah, I'm, I'm quite fond of him. So he, um, so that kind of then set a standard for 2022. Jobbik had not been one of the parties that had taken part in that primary, but what they had done is they had kind of announced that what we'll do is we'll give the um, whoever the, the winner of this primary system a free run for the mayoralty of Budapest. We know we can't win the mayoralty of Budapest, but we want to beat for Des. So we'll just let you guys get on with it. And we'll we'll just basically endorse the winner of that. So that was seen as a kind of fairly successful model for, for for winning, and it was basically the one big win that the opposition had had. Even though Budapest is a kind of more pro-opposition place than most of the country, um, it still ultimately got quite a large number of Fidesz voters in it. I mean, in, even in that election, the, the Fidesz mayor got 46% of the vote and, and they were, in fact, taking the mayoralty off him. So they then held a... So for this election, they announced that last year they, they, they were going to hold a, um, a huge opposition primary that was not... It was going to pick a both a prime minister candidate and a um, and a um, and also the candidates for the 106 cons- um, single member districts that Hungary has. So that process, I think, it's fair to say, went poorly. <laughs> so basically, in the first round of the um, of the primary. Um, the winner was Clara Dobrik, is Clara Dobrik, um, who is the wife of Ferenc Guksani, the incredible polarizing, controversial former prime minister of Hungary, who, um, who, yeah, is seen as having really caused the rise of Fidesz. Um, this, and then there, there was then a complicating factor in that this was a two-round primary, but 
at the second round, the top three were going through instead of just the top two. <laughs> um, this is something that has Hungary has done in the past with two two round elections. I think it was also a compromise that was basically designed to help some of the kind of lower ranking candidates. So the second the candidate in the second place was Karak Sony, um, who basically swept Budapest, but did very poorly outside it. Um, and then the candidate in third place was Peter Marquise. Um, Peter Marquise um, is a, a, a curious character. He is an independent. Um, he's not affiliated to any political party. He's the mayor of a small town in the countryside, um, which he won off of Fidesz in an area that is typically a Fidesz stronghold. He um, was historically a Fidesz member, albeit quite a long time ago, quite a low-ranking member as well. He wasn't like hanging out with Victor Orban or anything, but he, he was a member of Fidesz, and, and that's a part of his biography that he has attempted to utilise quite strongly. Um, and, and he's also basically a kind of Christian conservative, um, someone who is committed to democracy, which is why he was hanging out with the, why he was running for the opposition, but fundamentally of the centre right. Um, so he, um, so what then happened was basically both Karaksani and Marquise basically said the most important thing. Is that the candidate of democratic coalition doesn't win this primary? <laughs> so we're going to try and work out a deal between us so that one of us withdraws to beat her. <laughs> um, so they basically then had kind of a series of kind of long debates that were attempting to sort this out. Um, and it was decided that Marquis A would win, would be the candidate on the basis that. It was thought that he both both best be placed to win the election, but also best placed to beat the candidate of the Democratic Coalition. And so he, so Caraxoni withdrew. Marquise um, was the candidate, and he won in part because he then swept Budapest because of Caraxoni's endorsement. <laughs> um, so. Um, so he became a candidate and he was at that point relatively unknown. I think it's fair to say relatively untested. He'd not been an MP before. He'd, as I said, only been a mayor of a, of a small town. He'd, um, he wasn't affiliated with a political party. He, um, and so he was this kind of interesting unknown quantity. You could see the kind of way in which he could be appealing to the opposition because obviously by being someone who was kind of of the right, you can see how that would be seen as making it easier for him to win. Um, and he was also quite close to Jobbik as well, which was from an electoral standpoint, probably one of the more important parts of the opposition coalition. Um, you know, people can, may well bulk for good reason. Uh, Jobbik being part of this coalition, but ultimately beating Fidesz is going to have to run into winning over some pretty conservative people, given the nature of the Hungarian electoral system and of and of Hungary in general. Um, uh, and 
you know, uh, also just trying to kind of get past all the institutions. So yeah, that basically right. takes us up to the two October. <laughs> so, so just you know, um, a reflection. I'm going to elicit a reflection about Marquise. He's untested, relatively unknown. Mm. Um, was this? Is this not? I mean, is this not one of the perils of having a united opposition that has very disparate ideological elements to it? Yes. Um, unless one party clearly concedes to the ideological bent of another, you're forced to choose someone who is a bit of a blank canvas, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I think his ideology was less of a problem, as it turned out, than his personality. Um, to put it as bluntly as possible. So Marquise um, turned out to be someone who does not play well with others, quite frankly. So he, he rubbed up a lot of his coalition partners the wrong way, he, and that created infighting. He, um, he pissed people off. He even pissed off Jobbik. Um, Jobbik started criticising him, and, and Jobbik had literally backed him um from, from quite early on um so that was telling he also said some things which were quite outspoken and controversial and which fidesz then attempted to use against the opposition one of the most notorious was i mentioned i've mentioned this a couple of times but um in his new year's speech he um said that he suggested that it was good that people would that elderly people were dying of coronavirus because that would help the opposition win um which yeah not uh, not a pleasant thing to say um he he um so yes he he became he became a problem from that point of view i think it's fair to say um rather, rather than i think the idea of running a kind of someone from the more conservative end of the opposition isn't necessarily a bad idea but they probably need to be quite a polished political campaigner given that um for example the media environment in hungary is so biased towards the incumbent government that any little comment that can be picked up on and weaponized will be weaponized on mass with basically almost no um no real um capacity to kind of uh, no real right of reply uh, so yeah you really yeah. need to be on top of you everything yeah um i mean just you know a few my my kind of general impression of this and and it's something that um has been written about in in other contexts of incumbent populists is obviously that but a united opposition a divided opposition is weak against very strong uh executives who have you know media at their disposal etc a united opposition faces coordination issues mm. um, huge coordination issues on the one hand which is something that is you know was seen here that are kind of counterposed with credibility issues because um what sort of uh credit like you know to what degree can you have a credible candidate that spans so many different parties etc 
And I think the third thing, and, and maybe and you'll correct me if, if this is not the case in Hungary, is that in a kind of weird paradoxical logic, by uniting the opposition against the populist party, it all becomes about the incumbent rather than about an alternative, mm. right? Uh, so there's some voters who are definitely going to be put off and uh, by by the lack of um, any, you know, policy um, beyond just we're, we're not him, we're totally against it. The other thing is that the by having such a broad front, you give lots of attack points to different groups of people. So, for example, um, Fidesz had at one point a um, just before the election was um, announced, there was a, a Roma MP um, who was a, um, Fidesz affiliated, stood up in the Hungarian parliament and started saying, oh, the Roma could never vote for the opposition because it has Jobbik in it. And Jobbik were literally, you know, not even 10 years ago, walking around beating up Roma people. Um, and so, although Fidesz is a radical nationalist government, which is constant, consistently using anti-Roma rhetoric and, and is quite frankly, extremely racist against Roma people. It, it, that gave it an opportunity. It can find, through the Jobbik's participation in the opposition, ways to make the opposition seem scary to Roma people. I don't know whether that was effective or not, but obviously as that, that's the kind of tactic that you can you can use in these situations um you know you can start attacking the opposition for having for, for having good sani in it you can start attacking the opposition for for the social having the socialists in it you can you know you can start attacking the opposition because mark isaiah said something said something stupid again <laughs> like like because there's such a broad front you, you can attack from like multiple angles um which yes is itself a problem do we, do we think that these big broad opposition coalitions are a good idea then generally in these situations because i know for a fact that country which i know very well being turkey they're doing this at the moment gearing up for elections next year is this the wrong strategy then do we think overall i i, I think and, it depends oh, i think it depends there's the example of Venezuela as well, which mm. is a perennial issue in opposition to Chavez. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it depends on the context. So, for example, um, I've seen some talk that this is kind of pushing back attempts to unify in Poland, which it has been described as frequently been described as kind of going down a very similar path to Hungary. It's not nearly as advanced. I think one difference between Poland and Hungary is just frankly the difference of electoral system. So in in Hungary, the electoral system is so that it's very difficult to imagine how anyone how how you win without some kind of big force opposing uh, like opposing Fidesz. I don't see how you can win with any kind of division. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a kind of unified front. If someone came along with a great big party that could somehow sweep up together all the opposition 
into Big Ten. That was its own thing. <laughs> that would be fine. <laughs> but that doesn't exist. <laughs> like, um, and that's not that's not just because the system is incredibly majoritarian. It's also to do with like small details of the electoral system. For example, one thing that Hungary has long had is very high requirements for um, for running for office. This is actually one of the problems that caused by polarization in Hungary in, in, the, in the earlier era. Fidesz has actually raised that for this election um, so that it's, it's an even higher one. So, the, the, so even in terms of just running candidates, there's a heavy incentive towards some kind of unification, um, which, yeah, is very annoying, but obviously Fidesz is doing that on purpose. Um, another... Uh, in, in these cases, we're, we're obviously all... I mean, it's also all multi-party systems. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of the premise, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I don't want to kind of get into huge details about the Hungarian electoral system, but yeah. Really. No. Mm -hmm. No, no. But it, it's such a relevant. I mean, it's it's a really really relevant uh, topic. Like you know, there's been a lot of talk about okay populism and authoritarian leaders in power and and not not quite enough possibly because there aren't enough cases of what makes a successful opposition to them right yeah um, and i think there's a difference between like unity and coordination like there can be a degree of unity without it like yeah know, without necessarily fielding the same candidate there could be like a common platform or something yeah. Um, and know. and Turkey is a kind of interesting counterpoint as well, I think, because Turkey has something closer to kind of pure PR system. Mm -hmm. The electoral system that was used in the, the last election was one where parties could run as coalitions, but you could vote for parties within those coalitions. So that kind of gives you an ability to... Um, kind of pick the part of the opposition that you like and at least decide kind of the weight that it will have within within the kind of united front that's although they kind of tried to do that in hungary with the primaries it's obviously not quite the same thing because ultimately you're being presented one candidate at the constituency level and you're still being presented a, a kind of united list of candidates at the um at the um uh, for the proportional part of the election so in those terms um there's just like less ability to kind of pick and choose within the opposition. And I think Turkey's just changed its electoral system to um, one that gets rid of that coalition detail, but it's changed it so that it's um, a 7% threshold, which is possible to imagine most of the parties get in the opposition getting over. So that still allows some ability to pick and choose. So like a multi-party kind of opposition with, as you say, some kind of level of coordination can can exist in Turkey. A, a kind of, whereas in Hungary, a kind of much closer kind of unification needs to take place. Um, so yes, that is, um, yeah. I, 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 I think that's fundamentally about uh, electoral rules. Yeah, yeah, and in, and in presidential system, the bind is even stronger in a way because you really can't, you feel yeah, like at least for the second, at least for the second round. In the first round, you can of course kind of try and run like different candidates to a certain extent, right. depending yes. depending once again on the details of the rules. But yeah, yeah. totally. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. What was, so, I mean, there was the issues around like coordination, like the opposition and stuff, um, but, but there were also issues for the opposition during the campaign, right? I mean, there was a very yeah. interesting campaign. There's a lot of topics that came up, including obviously the war in Ukraine. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yes. So, um, so first of all, shall we talk just briefly about the kind of institutional problems that have? Um, so the USC's report on this election basically says that, hey, it was administered incredibly professionally. However, there are numerous problems with the idea of a level playing field, which it just basically says doesn't exist in Hungary. Um, and that's basically the best way of looking at the Hungarian regime. It's not a case, this isn't a regime which is stuffing ballots left, right and centre. This is a regime which has created an, a playing field which is deliberately slanted so far in, its fa in the favour of the ruling party that it's very difficult to imagine any other party win winning power. Um, and so... Um, uh, and that runs through media, it runs through um, state resources. So, for example, the OSC um, cites in its report the example of a, um, lap of a kind of state laptop scheme of handing out laptops to school children, which they say was used as a kind of as a campaigning event in um, illegitimate ways. Um, use of government communications is something that's um, cited in Hungary quite a lot. Fidesz frequently uses um, government billboards to literally just run party advertisements. Um, coronavirus, e email lists that were set up for coronavirus were used for, um, for campaigning in various ways, um, like things like that. Um, so the, the blend between the state and the ruling party in Hungary is a real problem and on top of that there are repeated problems with transparency so for example hungary um, has very untransparent um, campaign funding laws which are presumably being used to benefit fidesz um, media is incredibly biased in in fidesz's favor um, very purposely so um, things like this um, um yeah so and then there were kind of a, and then there's a controversy which i should probably touch upon briefly which is to do with expat voting um so um one thing that fidesz has tried to do in power is um is um enfranchise more people um, outside the country who are of, of, of Hungarian ethnicity in countries like Romania, in countries like Slovakia, where um, there are historic Hungarian minorities that date back to the time when those parts of those countries, or sometimes those entire countries, were part of Hungary. Um, they've done this in part because they believe that those voters will vote for them in, in, in larger numbers than even domestic voters will. Um, and but as well, I suspect I suspect one thing might be because expat voting is not covered by election observation missions. There is more 
capacity for kind of fiddling around with the details. And Hungary has a very large historic population of um, of um, people of Hungarian ethnicity living outside the country um, because of yeah we covered the history of hungary a little bit in the um in the previous episode um so if you want to learn more like listen to that um and in romania there was a scandal because in near targumurish which is a city with a very large hungarian pop with a sizable hungarian population a bag of burnt ballot papers was found many of which appeared to be for the opposition um so then where exactly this originated from it's hard to say obviously we don't have proof of how this came to be um the fidesz's line is that the opposition burnt the ballot papers as a propaganda tactic um but clearly obviously the finger of suspicion starts to point towards the Hungarian state and the ruling party. Um, I think that's probably the fairest way of saying. And so it's possible that to some extent they're trying to, I don't think, and the OSCE report doesn't suggest any um, examples of of like pure out and out vote rigging. There are, there are suspicions mentioned in the OSCE report about group voting, very large numbers of voters turning up to polling stations in in huge groups, which um, always gets election observers antsy because it can be evidence of, for example, busing in supporters, problems with like a bunch of problems, but like out and out rigging, perhaps not so much. But yes, in terms of the integrity of the vote, that is concerning too. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's likely to be a huge portion of what's happened. I think the kind of big thing that's ultimately resulted in Fidesz winning is ultimately the fact that there just simply isn't a level playing field. But it's worth mentioning that there are kind of there are reasons to believe that perhaps the integrity of the vote isn't. Um, as as wonderful as it could be. Okay. okay. Um. So maybe we should talk about the results and the kind of immediate campaign. Then, um. Obviously, Fidesz has won this quite comfortably, and probably more comfortably than the polls were suggesting. Um. In yes. The up to this. What has what has gone wrong in the in the campaign? Then, obviously, the, the two have. Obviously, we've talked about a lot of the structural problems with the opposition. We're kind of running into, but obviously, I think given the discrepancy it would suggest that there has been something going really wrong with the with the campaign as well how has how has Fidesz sort of scored this big victory yeah. again so the, the the campaign was um so early on the big fear um from observers outside Hungary was that it would be dominated by LGBT issues um Fidesz has um Fidesz has a long-running antipathy towards LGBT people, and part of their attempt to kind of drum up support on election day was to hold a referendum about a an anti a, a law which is very controversial, which is called the Child Protection Law, which is really an attempt to essentially attempt to um, clamp down on on um, LGBT people and teaching and, and and talking about LGBT um, stuff. Um, 
that ended up actually falling away into the background, um, principally because of the war in Ukraine. So the war in Ukraine at first seemed to put Fidesz a little bit on the back foot because um, the kind of because because quite frankly, Viktor Orban is allied very closely to Vladimir Putin, and um, very and uh, very and so the opposition decided to try and um, turn the war into a campaign issue and turn Orban's complicity with the Putin regime into a campaign issue. Um, and Orban is something of a political chameleon. He's a very skillful political chameleon. And so he, after a, a little period where, of seeming like he was on the back foot, he decided to pivot into um, declaring himself the candidate of peace and stability um, was a literal motto that um, he, he used. And um, this was kind of put in frames of um, the claim was essentially that the opposition are warmongers who would drag Hungary into a war in Ukraine. Um, uh, they would literally want to fight um, in Ukraine and by doing so, drag Hungary into a war with the Russian Federation. Fair to say this is ludicrous, but obviously this is a media environment that is incredibly slanted in his favor where the opposition doesn't really have a right of reply um so um that's part of it another point was essentially to do with the cost of living crisis which is now hitting basically everyone in europe um it's uh, and it's quite strongly related to the war in ukraine or has been accelerated by the war in ukraine um, essentially because of the impact on Russian energy exports. Um, uh, um, both Johnny, uh, Jonathan and I will have experienced rises in our um, electricity and gas bills, which frankly are a little bit eye-watering. Um, and that's been true across most of Europe um, because of the war um, and, and has in, also happened in Hungary. And so... Fidesz tried to weaponize this by essentially saying that as well as dragging Hungary into a war, um, they would also sanction Russian exports and that would energy exports, and that would make the cost of living crisis worse. And you'd be having to part with all your money just to kind of get by. And obviously, for particularly people in rural Hungary, which is still relatively poor. Um, that uh, that is not an enticing prospect. Um, it's a claim that once again I would say is a little bit silly, um, but um, it's um, it, you can see clearly what he's getting at. Um, the other problem that I think kind of came up, and, and I think as well that this is to some extent getting at the job base. Because the job has historically been incredibly pro-Russian itself, historically been um, very pro-Putin. Jobbik does not like the EU, um, even well, actually, 
Joe Wick is becoming more pro-European, but it, it's still it's more Eurosceptic than most of the um, opposition. Um, it's um, it, and historically, of course, Joe supporters have been very suspicious of globalization. They've been very suspicious of um, of the West. They've been very suspicious of the United States. Yeah, and of course, and of course. Let's be honest here. This also runs into the fact that the president of Ukraine is Jewish, um, and Orban and Jovic have both weaponized incredibly anti-Semitic rhetoric in the past. In fact, in Orban's victory speech, he um, named six enemies that he had defeated um, during the selection campaign, which he said was hard, um, which included um, George Soros, the international media. And uh, the president of Ukraine. And it's just like, just just say Jews, Victor. Yeah, I, I think that aspect too. And so one of the really Im- important things about these results at the end of the day is that about t- Jobbik came second in in 2018. Jobbik was the second largest party. There was a very divided centre-left opposition behind it. But Jobbik came second. It had had quite close thirds in uh, in 2014 and 2010 when uh, in 2014 when the opposition when the centre left part of the opposition was mostly unified in 2010 when the Socialist Party was still basically the only centre left party in town apart from like um, um, LMP just got over the threshold but um yeah that that's that they were still basically the chief kind of opposition to fidesz um so that's incredibly large voter pool from the last election about two-thirds that voter pool has either gone to fidesz or has gone to another party um the our homeland movement which has horrifyingly just got over the threshold, which is basically composed of the um, extremist wing of Jobbik, which left the party as it was moderating. Um, so our homeland is essentially the old Jobbik, the one that we all know and love, that likes to beat up Roma people, um, like is ex- extremely vocally anti-Semitic, um and which has no bones about being incredibly far right which um itself poses itself as a kind of third way that hates both fidesz for reasons of corruption essentially and the opposition because they're all wet liberals um uh, and um and, and so to some extent it's clear that that unification of the alliance taking in Jobbik, although I think it was done with completely understandable reasons, they have obviously not been able to take the Jobbik support base with them. They've obviously um, lost a great deal of that, which is uh, obviously poses questions about how the opposition moves forward. Um, as well as yeah, all, all, I mean, all of this interacts with the kind of incredibly uneven playing field and so on and so forth. Yeah, 
Like, I don't think any of this stuff about the war or about Putin or, or, or any of the rest of it would have nearly as much impact. I mean, it, it's not... I mean, Fidesz has gained seats and votes. Like, that doesn't strike me as an outcome that would be likely in a democratic system, um, even a democratic system where this kind of same kind of rhetoric was being utilised, um, given the economic, social situation, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, that's deeply unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's not really any any good takeaways from this one at all. Um, I'm struggling no. to find any silver linings whatsoever. Very few reasons for optimism. No. Um, given, given, I mean, Fidesz has won yet another two-thirds majority. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We have seen that in the, uh, after I've seen Ursula von der Leyen talking about um, finally removing some EU funding from hungary um due to yeah. kind of rule of law violations which is is an important step given that he has for so long relied on this kind of sort of double strategy of your skeptic rhetoric but also bringing yeah, yeah. in lots of european money and using that to kind of consolidate yeah, yeah. His power and, and base. even the majority of fidesz voters mm. don't want to leave the eu mm. <laughs> like that that that's not something that's on the cards and being in the eu is an important part of his governing strategy Mm. Um, because as you say he can use it to extract funds um, and it's the funds which keep things going it's fundamentally a, it, I mean like all authoritarian governments it's fundamentally corrupt mm. um, it, it's in every single sense of the word <laughs> you know Victor Orban is himself believed to be an incredibly wealthy man off of mm. state off of Fundament off the of, off of the state, not not off of any, you know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. So bulls, basically. Um, yeah, and I I don't really know where things go from here. Um, I I hope that I th- I think probably some kind of opposition cooperation is still going to. Be necessary if they're ever going to unseat Orban, but um, yeah, it obviously becomes harder with every single election because the, the system just becomes more authoritarian. Mm. Um, you know, it does. It's it, it, Hungary was recently named in VDEM as one of the top five um, autocratizers in the world. I think was the word that mm. they used, um, which I yes I. I would back them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it becomes very hard to ascribe any sort of democratic label to it at this point. Um, I think this is sort of yeah, yeah, a tipping point. To a yeah, extent. I mean, it, it's clear that it's clear that the problems within the opposition have caused at least some of this. I mean, I don't think that the, there's no relationship between mm. um, between public perception. Or, or how people cast their ballots and the result. Um, but it's clearly an increasingly weak one. Um, and, and that public perception is clearly shaped by just uh, an environment in which it's incredibly difficult to, um, to get any message out. I mean, Marquis A 
defend defended some of his more controversial statements by saying, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not um, vocal, if I don't say things that people hear, then I can't get elected either. And mm. that's not entirely wrong, albeit possibly I wouldn't go about it in quite the way he has. So as well as Hungary, um, there was another um, election on April the 3rd by uh, kind of uh, featuring a incumbent leader who um, is pro-Russian and um, increasingly autocratic. Um, Why don't we now um, move on to discuss Serbia, which is um, equally delightful result. Um, So, so Jonathan, um, why don't you tell us um, a little bit um, now, just by way of introduction, about what happened in Serbia? Yeah, so, I mean, as in Hungary, we had another um, sort of autocratizing leader, um, this is Alexander Vucic, um, and his party winning again fairly comfortably um, in sort of a joint presidential parliamentary elections, which are scheduled for the same day. Um, They obviously have certain similarities, obviously, in their kind of rhetoric in terms of being quite sort of nationalist and sort of pro-Russian, as you say, as well. Um, But, yeah, they have... There is important differences, I think, here as well in in this. So uh, one of them being is that Serbia didn't properly democratise following the fall of communism um, and enjoyed a period of of kind of sort of uh, sort of democratisation in the 2000s, but wasn't that complete and has now slipped backwards again, Um, whereas we probably did have a bit more of a proper democratisation in Hungary. The other thing is that Vucic, I don't think we can kind of started out as a as not a, not a Democrat either. He didn't really start out in the same way mm. that Orban did as a as this kind of radical liberal that then slowly transformed into a figure of the far right. Um, he sort of made a, a sort of play of being more moderate for a while, but has resumed this kind of authoritarian uh, strategy. Um, so yeah, and so for Serbia, I think we see. Some people may know about um, Slobodan Milosevic, who was the president in the 1990s. Um, he was the originally the the leader of the of the Serbian communists, and then founded the Serbian Socialist Party as a kind of reformed version of that. But unlike, well, it, it, this this never really became a social democratic party. It was became a a nationalist party essentially, with this kind of like left populist mm. kind of gloss to it. Um, and they waged the kind of uh, wars in Yugoslavia, which we won't necessarily wage, which are primarily um, with with this kind of intention of, of kind of creating a more of a greater Serbia, which um, again and fighting against the the Croats and their attempts to succeed, and many listeners will know, kind of led to um, especially the kind of uh, a lot of destruction, especially in, in, in atrocities in Bosnia. Um, he fell in 2000 following a kind of electoral defeat and this this uh, what's known as the bulldozer revolution um, of, of kind of popular mobilizations. Um, but yeah, it's, but this was a good sort of decade or so that he was he was a kind of force in Serbia. And, and it was a kind of one of these kind of competitive authoritarian regimes for this period um, um, as well. And uh, he, obviously the important parties in this period were um uh, was um, Milosevic's Socialist Party, 
but also the radical party of Serbia. This was an, a really, really right-wing party, extreme right party, um, but Serbian nationalist advocates a kind of greater Serbia, really kind of Russophile as well, um, highly Eurosceptic. Um, and this this party was was variously kind of on and off allied with with Milosevic. Someone it contained was Alexander Vucic, who was the Minister of Information under Milosevic for a while, um, was, was very much sort of infamous for creating a lot of propaganda, which demonised a lot of ethnic minorities in the country. Um, after Milosevic fell, the radicals remained a really prominent party, the largest overall party, although they were kept out of power for um, a decade or so when we had the, um, when we kind of had these kind of more sort of pro-European liberal parties um, sort of mm. dominating the government for, for, for a decade. But as we can see, so the, there, was, there was some progress made towards democratisation in this point, but not, not that far, um, not far enough, really, um, to say there wasn't proper kind of independence granted to, to media um, in, in this way. Um, obviously, parties still retained a, a, a lot of control over um, kind of civil service and stuff like this. There was still a lot of kind of cronyism and, and corruption going on. This, and, and, and I think this was said, was this kind of infrastructure was there under the control of the pro-European parties. And when they left, it all just fell into the hands of um, Vucic and the Progressive mm -hmm. Party, which would succeed them. Um, basically, what happens is, is that the radicals were out of government for, for, for 10 years. They were a very extreme party. They had a kind of cordon sanitaire around them. Nobody was yeah. dealing with them. They're, they're, uh, for a period, if I recall correctly, um, the Vucic's... Um, predecessor president Nikolic was their deputy leader and was acting as their de facto leader because their official leader was in on trial in the hague which <laughs> i think is telling yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely yeah but there was there was a fraction within it which included vucic which thought that this um nationalist radicalization was was not getting them anywhere mm. and was excluding them from government basically so the moderate wing um left the party Formed the um, Progressive Party, and this this was still nationalist, was still kind of conservative, but it I suppose it would it had tried to do this kind of jobic route, I guess, and it had become more pro-European and um, also more kind of economically liberal as well. And this party um, took power then in in 2012. Um, they won the presidency and the parliamentary. Uh, control the parliament as well um, in alliance with the with the socialists actually as well um Vucic was always really prominent in the party from the beginning but he didn't become officially party leader until 2012 and then prime minister in 2014 and then in 2017 he became the president which formally is not the most powerful position um however mm. he's basically widely seen to have gutted the um the prime ministership of all of its power and removed it to the presidency de facto mm. um and this has been um, they have done uh, made as as prime minister for the last few years um anna branavic i'm sorry if i'm not pronouncing that correctly um who is a the, the first female prime minister of serbia she's also um, the first openly gay prime minister of serbia um but this kind of uh sort of progressive gloss, I suppose, to sort of live up to the party's name, 
it mainly disguises the fact that the position has now been robbed of all its actual power and that Vucic has, has concentrated it into um, his his sort of authority in, in the presidency. Um, and so he's he's now used that as, as a sort of focal point um, for his power. And yeah, as I say, we, see, we can see quite a few of the similar things to Hungary in terms of like the blurring of the party and the state and the, the uh, kind of crackdown on freedom of, of, of information, especially that the, the media has become incredibly slanted, very hard for um, any opposition voices to find any kind of uh, any voices on there at all, um, as well as been a really kind of key, a really key uh, focus as well. This kind of, um, although Hungary, Serbia is not in the EU, they have mm. aspired to join it, um, which has given a quite a nice sort of uh, a nice kind of image to the party, although at the same time has remained pretty um, pretty yeah. pro Putin at the same time. Yeah, when when we discussed Ukraine, um, I briefly compared Yanukovych to um, to Vucic, in a sense that Yanukovych used to um, the um, former authoritarian president of, of Ukraine used to sometimes um, kind of hint towards or, or, or outwardly claimed to kind of want to one day join the EU but there was like this kind of tendency to kind of go some 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 unaware point in the future that we are not going to quite exactly say when but we're like at some point we'll we'll try and join the EU when really kind of concentrating on ties with Russia and I, I yeah Mm. But I get the sense, although I'm I'm not nearly as clued into Serbian politics as um, as I am to um, politics in in CE countries in in the EU, that I get the sense Vucic is kind of trying to do something similar mm. of just of trying to kind of look just pro European enough not to kind of frighten the horses, mm. but really his heart is kind of closer to, to Russia and that's that's the connection that he's more interested in. Yeah, they forged pretty close relationships with Erdogan actually as well. Um mm. there's, there's become a Turkey's been called quite influential in Serbia in the last um which, which is amusing for a Serbian yeah. nationalist leader. Yeah. Yeah it's yeah. it's a regime which is not fussed about rule of law requirements in the same way that the EU is um so regardless no. of how um so sort of troubling that would be for a Serbian nationalist, then yeah, it's 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 all good. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, as I say, I think the connection that they really do highlight is Russia. I mean, there, there was there were some protests in favor of Russia at the start of the Ukraine war, which seemed to be taken, which seemed to have the implicit support of the government. I think, mm. it's just, which yes, yeah, I I, I think yeah. is telling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Serbia and Russia is an old connection, so to be mm. fair, it's not unlike Hungary. It's perhaps less surprising, but still, mm-hmm. yes, no, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, other sort of other similarities is the idea of bringing other parties in to the regime. Um, so mm. in this case, the, there isn't a, a sort of an alliance around the around the progressives. And then there's also the long-standing coalition with the socialists, who in many cases they've not they've not needed. It's been a kind of oversized coalition to bring it in. And obviously, Fidesz also has its uh, Christian Democrats, who've now become a kind of satellite party of the of Fidesz um, over over the years. Mm. And and obviously, uh, 
Fidesz has also done bits of deals with other parties as well to give the kind of appearance of um, of kind of yeah working with um, others. My, my, minority organisations as well. Yes. As I felt, well, mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a there's a um, there's a minority German MP mm. who is elected in Hungary, who um, who is who is a Fidesz member, but mm. who notionally, notionally sits as part of a kind of German minority mm. kind of grouping. Yeah, um, well, they 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 typically have included the the Hungarian minority party um, from Vojvodina in the in the government mm. coalition as well. Has been quite a strong relationship with that. Um, as well but yeah the socialist has always been a, and that they've grown steadily closer together as well so that this time for the presidential election they stood they they both had Vucic as the candidate and they, they actually mm. proposed them jointly and um, together as well and the socialists also the last election in 2020 which is going to lead on to the sort of second point as well was boycotted by the opposition uh, it was not boycotted by the socialists though as well so it ended up just basically just being the the two of them as the main forces in that parliament um, yeah. as well. But this is the other thing is that uh, they've been in power since 2012. We've had elections in 2014, 2016, 2020 and 2022, which is obviously many more than is required on the four-year term. Um, this is, it, it has a tendency to take advantage of times when the party looks like it's doing well in the polls to call a fresh election um, as well. And this drains opposition party money makes it difficult often forces like reorganization and stuff obviously gives lots of time when he can be out there campaigning and the spotlight is on the president etc as well mm. um so yeah so this is this has been something that they've they've used in that way oh. hmm. that's so interesting um we hadn't heard of of that uh technique used yet had we of, of calling like because these are all like snap elections that are called every two years mm. yeah um with so much frequency that's kind of that's kind of interesting um yeah it must also give the um opposition voters a fair bit of fatigue as well because you're just like um going out every two years to vote an election that you know you can't win must be yeah. very demoralizing. <laughs> um, as as uh, a as a as a famous person once said, not another one. Yes, <laughs> uh, exactly. So we were saying, yeah, there's the point. Like authoritarians often hold elections. Partly the reason is that you can give yourself, like, say, we won by all of this. It's like a deterrent effect. Like you daunt the opposition. Like, what's the point of standing against it when sixty percent of the people are voting it? I suppose what's the the next best thing is to is to do that every two years and show people how well supported you are constantly. Um, mm. And also, if you hold the election at a time when you're really popular, then it's four years in the bank to sort of that you don't have to worry about doing that again, kind of thing as well. Um, so yeah, there this is this has been this has been a feature of the last sort of decade of, of Serbian politics, definitely um, as well. Lovely. Mm. <laughs> And and I mean, given that you've spoken to about all these transformations, um, how is like, how's the state of the media? How's the state of just kind of general election administration in Serbia? Has it also suffered along with the balance of of power? Yeah, so the the media is the main way in which the kind of uh, because unlike in uh, in Hungary, there isn't really gerrymandering because you can't really gerrymander it in terms of that it's a national uh party list system 
the whole country is a single constituency. Um, so there's, there's not really much in the way of drawing electoral boundaries, et cetera, on that way. But the media is incredibly slanted towards um, Vucic and the SNS at this point. Um, so yeah, this this is kind of the one of the main ways that that it's going across, and you see a lot of pressure placed on like civil servants, etc., and stuff to vote a particular way. The party is becoming the state to a certain extent, but it's not really. Um, the the level playing field has been kind of massively, massively uh, under undermined um, in in that. Um, and yeah, as you see, this election they have won again quite comfortably, although they does see that they have lost. 68 seats this was because this is this one has been contested rather than boycotted basically mm. mm-hmm. okay um so shall we um kind of briefly talk about the um, hungarian opposition as well so we talked about the sorry the serbian opposition mm-hmm. um the, um so we briefly talked about the hungarian opposition has having these kind of big coordination issues um, I understand that there's a kind of attempt to kind of create a unified opposition in Serbia as well, which is something that was done against Milosevic, actually, in that case, eventually successfully. Um, so um, so um, what's the kind of nature of the opposition in Hungary? Uh, um, mm. And kind of are they having similar sorry in serbia i keep saying hungry when i should say <laughs> <laughs> what's the nature of the opposition in serbia and um and um uh, and um what kind of issues are they perhaps having mm-hmm. yeah well it's much they they have not managed to unify in the same way but nor considering what you're saying earlier nor do they quite have the same incentive to because there's mm. not the electoral system to, to be that um, and also all of the the parties which were kind of uh, mainstays of the sort of 2000s when the pro-European parties were ruling, they've all basically been destroyed to a certain extent. They're very minor parties now um, as mm. well. And there's not been too much continuity with the with the period where the opposition was in power. Um, so, yeah, they, they've tried to unify a little bit more over the past few years because there was a big demonstrations in uh in 2020 when it was the boycotted election and stuff and then this last year there's been a wave of um environmental protests actually as well um linked to some kind of new um new kind of uh just a kind of extraction um uh, proposal by a kind of multinational um firm which has gotten a lot of opposition in the past and 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 a sort of eco-socialist party um, has actually won around um, won around five percent of the vote in the in this election, mm. um, and has entered parliament for the first time as well. Um, kind of riding on the back of this, a lot of the sort of more moderate opposition parties unified into this list, united for the victory of Serbia, um, gained about fourteen percent of the vote at the end of the day. Um, it was not particularly spectacular, and then there's another strand of the opposition, um, which is Deveri, which is um, uh, not a fan of Vucic, but is also quite conservative and right-wing and um, nationalist as well, and doesn't link with the um, the kind of more sort of centre liberal parties um, in the same way as uh, either. Um, so yeah, they're not they're not particularly united in ideology, and they don't really have the incentive to unite in one of these big platforms in the same way um, uh, because of the because of the electoral system here as well. Um, and yeah, it, it, 
yeah, so that's that's the that's the opposition basically. Um, they're they're not particularly close to we're not particularly close to unseating, um, Vucic uh, in this election. However, they are now well represented in Parliament again. Um, mm-hmm. back there because the last two years they've just not been there at all. Um, but now they now they at least they have a they have a presence and have been able to kind of reestablish themselves in the electoral arena, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah, the, yeah. Although, yeah, we we had a conversation relatively early on in this podcast life about um, Venezuela and and the utility of, of boycotting, and there's there's some real arguments on both sides, which I think in Serbia would probably be stronger than Hungary. But yeah, it's it's an interesting argument. Hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, and and, and no, so and one of the problems with not boycotting is that you can kind of end up almost kind of quasi legitimizing the regime by by having MPs, even as they said, can't really get anything done but, but like give a sheen of democratization because the mm-hmm. democracy, because hey, there's a, there's opposition in parliament, they're yeah. elected. <laughs> yeah, it's the dilemma. I mean, Linz called it loyal, loyal opposition. Mm. They're loyal not to the incumbent, but to the rules and the system. Yes. Ironically, the system is 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 it's not a level playing field. So loyal, loyal opposition versus disloyal. I mean, boycotting is is a form of disloyal opposition. Um yeah, yeah. but it's it's fraught, it's fraught, and it's hard to keep. It's hard to keep party unity. It's hard to convince professional politicians that they should all uh, boycott elections within mm. your party. So parties often got, get split because there are benefits individually to being a, uh, to getting gaining power in office, even if not like as a party. The SNS-led coalition won 120 seats, which mm. isn't quite a majority because the parliament has um, 250. But um, it is a majority when you include um, the Socialist Party, which won 32 seats. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so. It, it's my understanding. There's also the National Democratic Alternative and the, the Serbian Party of Oath Keepers, which is a very mysterious sounding party. Um, they both are pretty sympathetic to the regime as well. Um, mm. So it, it's fairly comfortable um, overall. Um, yeah, I think the, I think the oath yeah. keepers are a new split from the radicals, which have um, not been having a good time of things. Mm. Um, so yes, possibly even more extreme than mm-hmm. the SNS. I would bet, given that they stuck around. Yeah. Um, yeah, for... and yeah, and then we have a kind of smattering of um, of uh, sort of ethnic minority parties which don't have to cross the electoral threshold. Um, they're kind of exempt from that. Um, mm. So yeah, so most notably the party for the the Hungarian minority, um, which will has maintained six seats here, and will um, let's see is did also participate in the boycotted elections as well, and has often served in the Vucic cabinets. So is is yeah is is probably it, it will continue yeah to that role I'm imagining as well yeah yeah in these kinds of regimes in CEE, there's often a kind of attempt to um take in kind of minority politi- minority um parties 
um, by kind of giving them pork, essentially. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can see why you would want that as a minority party to still stay cozied up to the government. I mean, that's not mm. it's not too difficult to understand the, the the kind of motivation behind that, really. Yeah, in, in um, some ways, yeah. your in some ways, your very existence depends. Right, it's been a long running problem in Romania because Romania has quite a lot of minority MPs um, from a very bizarre system, um, and that's a democratic system, but still. The minority MPs have been noted by their tendency to try and back the government at every, uh, like, regardless of what government is, both because, frankly, there's problems with corruption with those minority MPs. That's not specific to those minority MPs. There's problems with corruption for everyone in Romania. But, um, there's, there's, but also because the, the existence of those seats is dependent upon but basically on on whoever's in charge of the political system kind of maintaining them so uh, um because a single single stroke of a pen on electoral law those seats are gone um uh, and that's obviously even more true in authoritarian regimes Mm. um yeah definitely definitely yeah and then there was the there was the presidential ballot at the same time in which um Vucic easily won. There's no need for a second round. He got about 60% of the vote um, on this. Um, mm. the, the main opposition candidate received about 19, um, received nowhere near close um, on, on that one. Um, so yeah, so both both sections of and 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 like uh like Hungary, this is a unicameral system, um, even though there is a directly elected presidency, which is which is the, the main difference, and they, they control both of those now. So there's not really any kind of checks um, mm. in the same way. I mean, we often I think we we probably um in in terms of Poland obviously gets put in the same bucket as these a lot of the time, or it seems to be heading in the same way. But a crucial thing there is that is that there is this Senate which the government does not control um, uh, in, in in the same as well. Um, yeah, which provides some kind of institutional uh, check on on the autocratization um, as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, not present here either. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, that too was depressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, I can't bring you any any good news from this one either. Um, yeah, and then we've got the the frightening French election to cover soon as well, which is going to be lovely. Yeah, for us on it. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking very forward to um, uh, to be scared crap to be crap mm. by the French um, as a as in in English tradition. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> okay. All right, um, so we should leave it there for this week then. Um, we'll see you next time for France. And then there's also an exciting referendum in Mexico to cover as well. Um, I mean, so we'll be back with that. But Andre- Andreas is very angry about so you'll get to a very fine rant, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, uh, it's another, I mean, it's another case of, uh, we sh- there should be a concept for this. I don't know. Uh, a puzzle, pu- extremely puzzling and and just Kafkaesque sort of um, mm. exercise. Yeah. Yeah. We'll the episode will be an hour long rant in Spanish by Andrea. So <laughs> 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 it's only an hour. Um, <laughs>
Bye. 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 All right. So look forward to that, everyone, and goodbye. Uh, goodbye.